Hello and welcome to Actuarial People with myself, James Turner. I'm excited to be launching a brand new podcast where each week I'll be speaking with the UK actuary. My aim is to give you, the listener, greater insight into the people behind the profession and their personal career journeys. So we'll cover things like why and how they became an actuary, what they do on a day-to-day basis, how they balance work and study with life, any specialisms they've developed, and how their role has evolved over time. So whether you're an actuary yourself, or you're aspiring to become one in the future, welcome and enjoy. Welcome to Actuarial People, Helena Ingram. Thank you, James. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Ah, thank you. Thanks very much for for being my guest today. How are you? How are things? Pretty good, thank you. Pretty good, yes. Lots of exciting stuff happening. So I wondered if we could start just by you giving a a brief overview of who you are and what you do today, and then we'll go back right to the beginning and, and work forward from there. Absolutely, yes. I'm a pensions actuary, and I've been working in the field of people development for a number of years now. So what does that mean? That means I've got an in-house role where I work to understand the learning and development needs of a range of colleagues right through from our most um, recent actuarial trainee joiners through to um, really seasoned, experienced client-facing consultants and design and deliver effective learning and development solutions for that population. Fantastic. Well, I will, I mean, there's lots we can talk about there, but I will start where I always do, which is to ask you if you could cast your mind back. Do you remember when you first discovered that actuaries existed? Yes, yes. I mean, I wasn't one of those people who was driven from an early age to identify a a career path and and kind of target that. Brilliant if you can do that, but um, it wasn't for me. I enjoyed learning and I liked the formal education system. And it was only when I got to my second year at university that I started to realise maybe I have to turn the learn into earn sometime soon. Um, So I went off to the careers office and the advice they tended to give math students in those days was go and look at actuarial work. Okay. So I, I, that was pretty much the first I'd heard of it, I think. And what I liked about it when I kind of lifted the lid and looked under the surface was it, it was using those math skills, the, the modelling and um, not too too in-depth, serious maths, if you like. I mean, it is pretty serious, but it, it's not like continuing to study maths at a, a higher level. Um but it partnered it with communication, with applying it to real life problems. So you could still talk to people and, and understand how it could be of value to them. Uh, and the other thing was it looked forward. I mean, there's a load of benefit in, in looking at the past and learning the lessons of the past. But I also think it's very important that we are thinking how to improve outcomes for the future. So that, that aspect really appealed to me. So I secured a, an internship with Mercer in Birmingham. And I survived that and I thought, well, probably I could do this for for longer than six weeks. So I applied for actuarial positions um, at the end of my degree course. And the big decision seemed to be, do you go for an insurance office or for a consultancy? And that was quite a straightforward one for me because I liked that consulting aspect. So I wanted to work in the consultancy and I applied for, for consultancy roles and, you know, it was, I think it was quite a nice time to be applying for jobs, to be honest. And I had a, a nice range to choose from and I went to what was then our Watson and Sons in the Rygate office where everybody started out back then. So there were 21 of us joining together and we all spent the first six months in Rygate 
after which people migrated to the, the various regional offices, but still with a, a high concentration in, in Rygate. I see. So that was sort of where everybody in the business started, no matter where you were going to be yes, ultimately yes. based. Okay, interesting. And going back to, to what you said, how much resource was there available to really get to know what an actuary did? How, how did you actually find out what you were getting into? Well, there was probably more than I took advantage of, um, to be honest, but um, I don't think you can ever really understand what a job involves until you've you've walked in those shoes, till you've done it for a little while. You can talk to people who are doing the role. You can um, read up. There's now more than ever. There's there's so much information freely available. But until you actually put that into context and see what it means to you, how you can can live it, it's um, I think it's quite hard. You're just taking your best guess on you making the best decision mm-hmm. you can at the time on the information available. It's the same yeah. with studying. You know that um, working and studying is going to be difficult, but you can't really compute what that means to you it's not yeah. until you do it yeah so how, how did you find it how, how was the first first sort of year or so do you remember I think it was a really nice introduction um it was quite gentle it was quite sheltered you know the incoming actuarial trainees that date was quite a big event in the in the life cycle of the firm so we felt immediately very welcome and part of a community and quite valued which is always nice. There was a, a very good structured training program for us all. And obviously that's um, continued to grow and build under, yeah. under my stewardship and others. <laughs> um, and also we were together with, with you know people in a similar situation. So there was that, not peer pressure, but peer support really. You, you were all developing at a similar pace. You got people to talk about work issues with, you got people to talk about study with. And if you saw... A lot of people were passing two or three exams, then that was your expectation. You thought that was normal. I should be doing that as well. So I think it helped to to keep us progressing quite fast. Yeah. And did you enjoy the, the actual work, getting to grips with DB pensions? Yes. Um, I mean, there's an element of nervousness because this is, this is real lives you are impacting, isn't it? Someone's mm. pension transfer value. And so, yeah, we were a little bit cautious or I was a little bit cautious, but it, it did feel worthwhile. And the bit I really liked was starting to go out and, and watch consultants interacting with clients and hearing how what we were doing back in the office was actually translated into something useful for, for decision making and, and moving forward. And that happened fairly early on. I mean, to start with, you're just you're sitting there and absorbing it, and then gradually, if you show you're capable, you start to get um, opportunities to talk about bits and pieces and answer questions, usually with some backup there. So quite a safe space, but a, a good learning space. Yeah, was that the part that you enjoyed the most? Actually, getting out and and seeing clients. It was, yes, yes. I mean, the, the summers are fun, but I didn't want to be someone who just sat and, and did numbers all the time. How did you find the exams? Um. How did I find the exams? I was glad with hindsight that I hadn't got exemptions. I think that that's a nice um, accelerated start to your exam um, checklist, but it's quite hard to then suddenly go into those later exams without having equivalent experience in the in the job to be able to bring to bear on those. So it was good for me that I got some fairly mathematical and not so contextual exams to to get off to a good start with and then we needed to do the later exams which back then was investment pensions life insurance and general insurance and the ones i really found difficult were life and general insurance which just seemed 
completely bizarre because I got no kind of um, experience of doing that work. Yeah. And I think general was the one that I, I really um, struggled along with. And they, they graded your failure rates then, um, but not your passes. So I went FA, FB, and then pass, which, you know, no logic in my head to that at the time, but I was just happy to uh, to pass it and, and finish. Yeah. So I um, I qualified in, I think, four and a half years, which is not, not too bad. I was not unhappy with that. So it, what are your views on exemptions today? Would, would you advise people to avoid getting too many or is it, is it down to the individual? No, I, I, I think you have to make an individual decision. So you have to look at, you know, what works for you, your preferred study style, your aspirations for um, for qualification and what you're going to do to to kind of fill in that that experience gap that's going to potentially hold you back on the on getting through the later subjects. Do you see any differences between people that have come in with, you know, seven, eight, nine exemptions versus those that had zero or one or two? Historically, we used to be nervous of people who had got a lot of exemptions, but we we're not seeing the same kind of differentiation anymore. No. Mm-hmm. So you were, you were with uh, Watsons and Sons, Watson Wyatt. You were there for for eight years, and then what happened next? Well, it was it was a logistical thing, really. I wanted to relocate. The time was right to relocate back to the Midlands to be near extended family, and I could have done a transfer to the. Um, the Birmingham office, um, but that would actually have been quite a, a difficult commute, and I wasn't sure I was quite ready to to do the travel time as well as as the office job. And it was the time when it was the first pensions mis-selling scandal, so there was um, SIB review work to do, which is essentially calculations packaged up individually and a lot of actuaries signed up for this, and we got paid by the case, so expensive piecework. But you could do it at home. You could do as much or as little as you wanted. And that actually worked really well for me for some time. But um, ultimately, I felt I needed to get closer to to office work again and you know, not be too, not lose too much ground in, in the consultancy business. I still wasn't quite ready to commit to that journey into Birmingham. <laughs> so I, um, I saw an advert for a role at a small consultancy in Warwickshire and I went there and stayed for a few years. Different sort of clients, different um, infrastructure in the office, and actually a really, really valuable experience to have had. I'm really glad I did that because it's you can get very used to everything that happens in a big company, and it's good to see that other side. You know, how does it work in a smaller company? How can you be more self-sufficient? What are the differences? And then you can bring that perspective and that experience to bear when you go on to your next role. What, what are the differences? Well, there's more freedom, I guess, to make make decisions and make things happen quickly. Um, but there isn't that um, that same kind of backup of, of knowledge and resources. You're having to, when a piece of legislation comes out, you're having to read through that yourself and, and take the key points out of it. In a big firm, you've probably got a special team sitting there that, that does that um, intensive work for you and then passes you the, the summary and you can, can take it from there. So, you know, pros and cons good to have the the different perspective yeah okay and then so you were there for three or four years and I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile now so then you went back to to WTW what was the what was the yeah. reason for that hi guys we'll get straight back to the conversation in a second 
Just a quick reminder that when I'm not recording podcasts, I specialise in helping pensions actuaries with their career moves, and I'd love to help you when the time comes to explore your options. I work with people at all levels, whether you have a couple of years' experience through to senior positions. My approach is different to most recruiters. I started my own business last year and work alone, which means I have zero pressure to hit targets and can just focus on giving the best possible help and advice. So whether you're thinking of making a move now or would just like to understand your options for the future, please get in touch via LinkedIn or email james at turnerperkins.com. Back to the show. It felt like that, you know, the time was right to, to move back into that larger firm again. And not necessarily WTW, um, but I was I was looking for what was available. I kept good communication with WTW colleagues um, in the time I'd been away. So I was talking to them and I'd made connections in the Birmingham office. So I was talking to that team. They didn't have any vacancies immediately when I was looking. Mercer's did. So I applied for a role with Mercer and I was offered a role in their Birmingham office. Um, and meanwhile, WTW said, actually, we are now recruiting. So my heart was still with WTW and I jumped that way. I went back to, to WTW at that point into a pensions consultancy role. Um, but I quickly discovered that I, the things that used to excite me about it weren't quite as exciting anymore. And it was a very different environment. When I joined um, in Rygate, we didn't have a computer on the desk. You know, Every sum was done on a giant mainframe in the basement. And now I was, I'd sort of got used to computers in the meantime, but um, I was having to run software myself at my desk, which is fine, but it's a bit of a learning curve. Hmm. Um, plus, there was a whole lot of, of legal stuff that had been happening in the interim that I needed to get to grips with. And it was just quite a lot to, to contend with, as well as you know fitting into a new client team and, and being valuable to that client. So I wasn't getting as much of the consulting as I wanted to, I think. That's that, that's what I'm coming around to saying in a long okay. way. Uh, yeah. I, I wasn't getting the same expo- exposure and experience as I had hoped for. And it was going to take me a lot of energy to get myself up to a place where I could do that. So I started looking around for opportunities. And one of the lovely things about Big Firm, which I didn't mention as an advantage before, but is a key advantage, is that you have got a lot of different potential roles, different areas to, to work in. And a colleague drew my attention to a vacancy in what was then the training team. And I thought, you know what, that's applying the same skills. I'm just consulting to a different audience. I'm, I'm looking at colleagues and, and working out their needs and solutions to those needs. So I hadn't got any learning and development experience, but I did have good knowledge of what it means to be a pensions actuary. And that is really a very valuable commodity in, in L&D when you're working in a big um, pensions consultancy. Mm. So uh, I had credibility quite early on in that role because the people I was working with knew that I understood what their work environment was and what they needed, what was important to them. So I, I, I got that role and really I, I just loved it from outset and gradually built it until the team changed from training to learning and development because I think there's a lot more to to supporting people through their careers than training. Training feels a bit narrow. That that whole development, personal development piece really interested me. And so ultimately I was I was heading up that team and we got four or five people working within the team and, and just delivering to this audience of 800 plus um, colleagues in retirement GB for WTW with occasional extensions into, you know, different lines of business and geographies, but more on a sharing information basis than, than leading um, development mm-hmm. programs. 
so how do we sort of break this down and, and dig into this? So at the beginning, you were, as you say, it was more training. So what, what did that involve? Sort of training on systems and processes and technical yeah. stuff, legislation, was it? Or was it? Yes, but um, designing and putting together the programs rather than actual delivery. Okay. So I would deliver on some of the soft skills pieces like um, time management, how to be a good facilitator, you know, how, what you need to know when you are delivering training programs. Because what we were doing was bringing in subject matter experts who were fantastic in their field, but had perhaps not got the same experience of connecting with an audience, understanding what that audience already knew and what they needed to know and how to deal with people who are perhaps looking a bit disengaged, you know, how long an attention, uh, attention span is, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So techniques for making training delivery work, that, that fell within my, my remit. But apart from that, I was, I was drawing in those experts and saying, look, you look good at this. Can you own this part of the program? Here's our learning objectives. How would you best be able to do that? And then yeah, the continuous improvement thing, getting the feedback, building the improved program for next time and 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 gradually turning it into quite a, a big enterprise to be honest it's it, i think our development programs are industry leading i'm really proud of them and you'll see on on my um, linkedin actually i've got a couple of princess royal badges on there because what we did after a certain period of time we thought we think these are good but let's test that let's take them to someone external and see what they think of our, our development programs maybe the stuff we can learn and, and improve further from that external perspective um, and so we we got a, a training award for both our intern program and for our pathfinder program which is something that aims to get people into a position to be confident to consult at an earlier stage of their career okay. and the thing i like about princess royal is it's not a first second third um, first over the line competition it's there's a standard there and if your program meets the standard then you get that accreditation. If it doesn't, then you don't. And you have to provide metrics. So it helped us a lot in um, in really thinking hard about how we assess our programs, because that's one of the really challenging things, uh, proving return on investment for any of these, these softer items. You haven't got a client paying you money for it. There isn't fee income to judge you on. Hmm. But um, we got some good, good ideas about metrics from that Princess Royal process. And, you know, I'm really proud of the team and all the colleagues involved in, in supporting those programs because it's a real boost for them to, to see that that marking on our on our programs. Changing from being an actuary to writing training programs and, and L&D programs. I'm, I'm trying to avoid saying training because it's, it's about much more than that today. Um, but was that just something that came naturally to you? And, uh, okay, I get to do this now. I know what I'm doing. Or how did you transfer your skills to that side of things? A lot of our skills as consultants and actuaries are very transferable. It's, it's a nice skill set to have. So a lot of my consulting skills I could translate and I wasn't actually, I mean, I was delivering some things, but I was also calling on experts. I was seeing my boundaries, my limits, and knowing when to call in someone else to, to do something more meaningful. But also, the pool of people doing learning and development was relatively small. And so it was, it was fairly easy to, to make a mark there, probably. I, I, I educated myself further, and, and I could see what I could learn. But I was already at a bit of an advantage because um, nobody knew all that much about it so a little bit of knowledge you know it's a, that's a good place to start and then you you just continue to try to try to learn and find different resources so I'd, I'd be looking at um 
online stuff and, and external stuff to to develop my prowess, if you like, in, in what I was trying to do and really get us as an organisation into a good position. And I've, I've always looked externally. It's, you have to be quite... Um, you can stay looking within the company you work for when it is so big and provides so much as WTW does. You don't actually have to look externally, but I think that's quite dangerous and you lose a lot of perspective and you're in danger of just reinforcing views that you already hold if you only talk to people who are like you. It's a diversity point, isn't it? It's, mm-hmm. You want to get that range of opinions so that everybody's different experiences combines to build this thing that's, that's greater than the some of the individual parts. So I was also looking at stuff that the IFOA was doing at that time and you know some of my volunteering activity. I, I took part in the what was the Lifelong Learning Board when that was running and, and got quite a lot of exposure to educators and, and different people, professional people working in, in education at that point. So you bring all those ideas back and, and you build them into something that um, that works for your organisation. So I'm just trying to get a clear picture of everything you do. You've got, I think you said, circa 800 people. How do you organise L&D? Are there lots of different parts to it? Or can you give us an overview? Yes, absolutely. I mean, when I say I'm looking after 800 people, I'm not personally looking after 800 people. You know, and I'm very recently, I'm focusing on that most senior end of okay. the, the career spectrum and, and bringing in things like coaching, which can really um, fast track and empower development um, and impact a lot of people at once um so there's myself there's someone else leading the team now and then there's a a group of four or five individuals plus all these experts from different parts of the of retirement um and kind of advocates in each office so we, we we're able to leverage our knowledge by using these um these representatives in the offices to draw people into the programs but the program themselves it's built initially around that trainee consultant program so the the people coming fresh into the business but even in week one we're starting to talk about softer skills as well because they are increasingly important so there's a big technical element but bringing in the soft skills and that program lasts for uh, a few years includes elements of rotation and and doing different jobs exposure to different parts of the job and I haven't been very close to that for quite a few years, but it's very, very well managed with with other team members. Yeah. And then we we follow on with further courses and then we get into more optionality. Um, so if you're having some difficult conversations, maybe you can come on something like an influencing skills course or a negotiations course. And um, we can draw all this on one page. We've, we've got a kind of plan and you can see all these courses, which which is quite a good thing to have. But there's obviously a lot of detail behind that. But it, it does make it feel like you can put your hands around it and see what kind of pathway through that development piece you can follow. And then also from looking externally, a few years ago, it was very obvious that um, all this stuff needed to be organised on a learning management system. So we've been using various proxies for what would become learning management systems up until that point. But, you know, even kids in school, they're using Moodle and, and there's plenty of other LMSs out there. So we brought in a learning management system and that served us very well just pre-pandemic. We obviously didn't know we were all going to have to shut down, but the fact that we had got a lot of resources stored on this, this piece of software um, meant that although we couldn't continue to deliver learning in the format that we ideally would have liked to, 
we didn't have to interrupt anyone's learning. We could still function. We could still keep going and provide stuff virtually. Yeah. So we were already moving to a blend. The um, pandemic accelerated that move to blended learning. And now we're back where we're doing quite a few things in person, but we're also seeing the advantages of when we can do the the virtual stuff too. And we've got record keeping. So that's not just for us as a team to see who's done what. That's individuals. Individuals can manage their own learning journey. I think that's, that's quite important because um, it's not just what we as an organization give people. There are, you know, there's so many resources now and you can tailor things so much to the path you want to follow that I think it's really important that we encourage that self-ownership and having visibility of what you've done and what you can do. That helps to yeah. self-own the journey. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Um, so at the point that it becomes optional, mm. how do you find the sort of uptake? Because I've, I've not worked in natural business, I've worked in recruitment businesses. And yeah, yeah. once people get to a certain level of comfort in their role and they start mm. to believe oh I know what I'm doing they might shy away from from L&D a little bit and just think oh leave me alone let me mm. get on with the job does that happen in the actual world or are people more keen to continue I'm sure it does work? I'm sure it does <laughs> but um, I think it helps that we are anchored in the business so um, I'm not an HR professional I'm, I'm an actuary and that means I can tailor things a little bit more so that they look more appealing to the actual population. I'm trying not to say that um, they're biased against HR professionals because I don't think we should be and, you know, yeah. we, we need to work together. But it certainly helps that, that they can see I've, I've got their background and perspective and our team has got that background. But there's an element of encouragement in there. It's, it's voluntary, but we have this, this network of, of representatives in the offices who are going around to people saying, you know what, this would be quite useful for you at this point. And have you seen what options there are available? They're, they're encouraging signups. Um, and then we're, you know, we're, we're managing those lists pretty closely. And you don't just sign up to something and then you can forget about it. You know, we'll, we will make sure you turn up for that course. We'll follow up asking for feedback. We'll, you know, it, it's quite a structured process, even though it's um, optional. As people get more senior, what areas are, are more popular in terms of what are they coming to you and saying, I'd like to improve in this area, in that area? Is it about client facing? Is it about revenue generation? Is it soft skills, anything else? Well, it's, it's all those things and more, yeah. I, it's increasingly personalised the, the more senior you become, I think. But certainly it's, it's always fun to to practice um, a bit of pitching or, or sales skills, isn't it, in front of a, a fairly safe, um, kind audience? I mean, we do one uh, quite fun thing, which I don't know if you know the, the radio show, Just a Minute. It's kind of around that mm. format where you get given a random subject to talk about and you just chat about it for 60 seconds. We don't do the bit about avoiding repetition, hesitation and deviation, <laughs> but um, it's it's meant to replicate, if you like, bumping into a client on a, a train station and you'd be expected to have a a fairly informed opinion about reasonably topical issues so it might be you know who who would I have to mentor me if I had free choice or um, what did you think of some sporting event recently you know, it's it's not technical um, people join they sit in the audience they know if they sit in the audience they might have their name called out and they might get to talk about something they hadn't prepared for yeah um, the very very nice thing is 
that we ran it virtually because we started it when we were all working virtually. And that meant that something that might only have given exposure to people in a large office in London, say, everybody was on an equal playing field. So everyone was dialing in and colleagues from Edinburgh, from Leeds, from Manchester had exactly the same opportunity and, and the same platform as those from the bigger offices. And we have an audience. This is um, something that our most senior leadership loves they join the calls and they give feedback, which it's a psychologically safe space. It's not meant to traumatize anyone, uh, but they give um, positive feedback and constructive, if you like, feedback, but it's still in a, framed in a positive way. Do they have a go as well? I'd like to oh, they're that. prepared to, yes, yes, from time to time. But, but uh, I must do that actually on the next one. That's yeah. a good idea. Um, <laughs> they get visibility of these people that they might not bump into very often otherwise. So that's, you know, that's really valuable yeah. for everybody. And um, leadership being behind any kind of initiative, that's a very simple one, but any kind of initiative, you need that buy-in, else it's got no credibility with, with the rest of the, the colleagues. As it, it has to be seen to be important to the people who are making decisions. Yeah. What, why do you do it? I understand how you moved into it, but you've obviously stuck with it. What, what is that? Because I've kept learning and because I really enjoy it. It has always motivated me to help people to see the potential they have and to work out the routes to realise that potential. You're helping someone achieve something that um, they'd really like to or that they hadn't realised was possible, but they could do and it, that's very rewarding and it, it feels useful what's a typical day look like what's it look like uh, there, there isn't a typical day really is there it's, i was <laughs> going to say it's, it's kind of lonely sitting by myself in front of me <laughs> it isn't really um a lot of it is is um at home some of it's studying some of it's um one-on-one -on -one work increasingly i'm doing coaching work so i have a lot of um fairly intense conversations with individuals um which you know the coaching thing is brilliant because the first thing you learn when you're teaching training to be a coach is you've got to stop jumping to solutions and we all love to to see the the quick answer but you just you you can't do that you have to ask questions ask 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 even if something's really obvious to you it's no no value to the person you're coaching unless they've worked through to that themselves so you have to be asking those open questions and um, the beautiful moment comes when they realize something and then you see something and it, it's more than either of you could have worked out individually but it, it's the right answer for that person it might not be the right answer for you or for another person but it's right for them and uh, you know that that's a kind of magic bit for me does part of you miss i mean you are an actuary but miss doing the traditional actuarial job at all no, not a bit, because I'm still mixing with plenty of actors. I've mm. got loads of high quality, interesting, fascinating colleagues to work with. I don't miss the maths and um, I don't miss the modelling that much. I think it's got very complicated now as well. I think it would, uh, it's probably far too hard for me. <laughs> um, and I, I like the, the human bit, the soft skills, the connection. So you, you, we, we spoke briefly on the phone the other day and uh, you said you're passionate about lifelong learning. What, what does lifelong mm. learning mean? to you it means well first of all if we i think we've got a human need to keep on growing and developing and when we stop doing that we kind of atrophy in some way and that, that feels like the start of a, a decline so i think it's, it's quite important to to keep curious about the world to keep um, seeing what there is available to learn and, and how to improve your knowledge and um, your sphere of influence so to me it's it's taking advantage of those opportunities and, and 
there is so much resource available out there now. Some people have been talking about imposter syndrome as an example quite a lot recently. Mm. And I thought, well, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I don't really, when I think about it, know that much about imposter syndrome. So how can I give a, a helpful, educated answer here? And I just searched around a bit and I found a free online course, which I think the University of Southern Australia had put together, very high quality materials, um, three one-hour sessions, and I got a much clearer understanding of imposter syndrome. And there is so much like that, you know, that very relevant things, resilience, um, all the stuff we've got on climate and um, the new IFOA material on you know, banking, artificial intelligence, data science, machine learning, all of these things. Um, it's easier than ever to learn. And actually, it's potentially overwhelming because there is so much opportunity. But there's learning from from experiences as well. So in a big company, you've seen how I've taken advantage of the, the some of the routes that are available. There's many, many more than that. And I think we need to be a bit brave and, and grab hold of some of those opportunities because it's, it's that thing about um, once you're outside of your comfort zone, that's where learning happens, isn't it? Hmm. That's where development happens. And it's hard to put yourself there. But when you look back at it, you think, I'm really glad I did that. You know, I've, I've learned so much from that. And the thing about making mistakes as well, you learn from mistakes. You don't want to make a mistake that costs the company or the client anything, but you do want to be able to get things not quite right in a safe space so that you pick up the learnings and do a better job the next time. So, you know, there's all these different ways of learning. Um, and the growth mindset thing fascinates me. Anyone who's um, left school in the last 10 or 15 years probably did all the growth mindset, Carol Dweck work, while they were still at school. For anyone my generation, it was quite a revelation uh, that, you know, you're not limited by what skills you had when you were born. You you can develop all of all of these skills you can be so much more than you think you can be but we tend to limit ourselves and so this whole limiting beliefs challenging limiting beliefs i think that that is fascinating and again there's a lot of material out there now on growth mindset dr helen wright's done something with the ifoa which is um on their virtual learning environment to to sign up for um just an introductory course but a lot of actuaries have taken advantage of that and are, are doing that work and I hope a lot more will, because I think that really can open doors. Yeah, I was just thinking, if, if I'm an actuary at WTW, mm. I mean, there's so many things. You're just giving us a, a few examples that, 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 that come come to mind, but there's so many different things they could be learning about and exploring. Mm. But how do you enable them to realise what they could be looking into? Well, we're very focused on ensuring equality of opportunity. So we advertise internal vacancies and things like rotations on a platform that's there for everybody to look at. We want to make sure there's visibility to everybody. And then people should be having conversations with their managers and their, you know, their L&D representative in the office to, to think about their career, career conversation, which I'm sure all, all big firms and probably small firms do, don't they? And you can incorporate in the reflective practice stuff and planning as part of your your IFOA requirements but you, you have those conversations with your managers with people around you and they will be aware of what's going on as well and the the L&D team is is there knocking on the door and, and dialing into all colleague meetings and, and highlighting new opportunities so it's 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 all advertised and promoted as as fairly as we can and we try and 
encourage participation, particularly at the more junior end of the scale, by including things like rotations in the training programme at that level. So people get into the habit of, of taking opportunities. I appreciate it's quite hard once you've embedded yourself in a few client relationships, you worry about letting go of those. You think, well, if I walk away from this for six months to try something else, is it still going to be there? To... It probably will be. Six months isn't that long, but you know that, that's an individual decision, isn't it? How, how do you ensure in, in that situation, yeah, the person might be worried about walking away from from clients, but they might also be worried that if they put their hand up and speak to their manager and say, I'd like to do something different. Mm. The manager might not be happy or the manager might think, I'd love them to do it on a personal level, but who's going to look after these clients? How, how do you how do you make sure that it's something that everybody is comfortable with? Well, I mean, that that is the aspiration, isn't it? And it's always going to be hard for a manager because the manager has part, a key part of their role, getting the work done. Mm. And if you let someone go away, you're potentially risking getting the work done. So there's a piece there about support. The business needs to support um, backfilling roles that are vacated temporarily by someone going on rotation, for example. Um, But there's also a piece about you don't want to just be having this conversation cold. You should be maintaining that relationship so that it's not difficult to, to explore possibilities with your manager. Yeah. and vice versa you know the, the, and if that's not working then that that's a conversation to have um with someone else isn't it you, you need to be just saying it's not quite working with my manager but um i would hope that you know most of our managers are are pretty reasonable and, and care about the aspirations <laughs> of the people they're managing but i'm sure they do that's, that's certainly the impression i have so so more recently you've been focusing on uh working with the senior leadership team tell us more about that Yes. Well, I mean, the, the whole program is so vast and I'd, I'd reached the position where I was um, heading up um, people development strategy for retirement GB. And I was I was really happy with that, where that had got to. And I was sitting on um, leadership, one of our leadership groups. I felt that it, I'd taken that to a good place and I knew I'd got a very, very strong team coming up um, who would take it further. So it seemed like a good moment for me to kind of explore a bit more widely. And I'd been doing the coaching thing. So I thought I'll take a sidestep. I'll do more coaching. I'll continue to support the the senior end, which, as you said, is, is stuff like um, the the pitching, the sales, the um, the communications with, with clients. Um, and then I'll watch the L&D team go from strength to strength um, with me slightly to one side of it it feels like the right thing to do and I didn't want to stay there until I was too stale and not offering enough and not moving it forward mm. if that makes sense yeah I was I was ready for that new challenge and the people around me were ready to for their own new challenges so it, it, it worked or oh, so far it's worked it's quite early days yeah how, how are you finding it because I guess they're new to, you know you're working with really senior people is it is it different to what you were doing before or just an extension of it it's just a progression. It feels like a very natural progression. And I mean, I'd always been working with that audience. Um, I'm, I'm just slightly rebranding myself in, in that um, softer skills field for them, I think. So rather than seeing me as, as operational, it's it's more as a, a softer skills support. What is it about WTW? We've, we've talked about what you love about the actual role, but you've, you've spent a large portion of your of your time working with them. What have they done so well to keep you this long? They've given me a lot of opportunities. They've kind of indulged me when I wanted to go off and and do slightly different things. And I've demonstrated the value to the business and they've 
they've stuck with me. There's people there that I started work with 30 odd years ago. You know, people stay, a lot of people stay at WTW for a long time. And a lot of it is about those personal connections, the, the people you're working with. There, there's some really strong, really good colleagues. And it's hard to capture that always, isn't it? I mean, I'm, there will be other places that are great, but this is the one that I'm I'm used to. And uh, I feel I feel like I'm a good fit there, which which is nice. And that gives me strength to explore other and space to explore, you know, my own learning. I saw on LinkedIn, you are a volunteer for the diversity group of the Institute of Actuaries. Is that yeah, right? the diversity action group? Yeah. Before that, actually, I was I was thinking back. I co-chaired the WTW Gender Equity Network, which was women and supporters in the early days. And I was trying to think, why did I do that? And I think it's because I was sitting around the edge seeing things that I didn't quite like and, and grumbling about them. And it's always better to my mind to to get involved and make a difference rather than to, to sit and complain on the, on the edge. So my term of office as um, a co-chair for that gender equity network come to an end. And coincidentally, the IFOA was advertising for their diversity group. So I, I just put my hand up to go and see what it was all about. And that was very, very fortunate timing because they were starting to look at what they could do about the pipeline of women in um, going through senior positions. So I think... There's a much better gender split at entry point to the profession than there is high up. Yeah. And so they're thinking, well, why, why are we losing this talent along the way? And at the same time, um, PIC were looking to invest in the same kind of problem. And so I got involved in what was the actuarial mentoring program, still is the actuarial mentoring program. And we brought in the, the specialist diversity um, group um, moving ahead who are fantastic at setting up um, mentoring programs. They, they run the 30% club and, and other major ones as well. So I was able to work with PIC, the IFOA and moving ahead. And we built the, the AMP, the actual mentoring program, which is just starting its sixth iteration in the last couple of months. There was always an eye on um, diversity through a broader lens. We started with gender because that's a place a lot of people start. It's very easy to count the statistics compared to many of the other characteristics. Yeah. But we we always had that eye on the the wider diversity point. So now in this this sixth year, mentees are not just women. They can be. It started out as women at or around um, qualification point, but now it's women at any career level. It's men and women at career transition points. It's anyone who considers themselves to be from an underrepresented group. And it's the managers of, of people in those groups I've just outlined. And then mentors are senior management people, not necessarily actuaries, but with a decent understanding of, of what an actuary does. So my main role on the diversity action group for the IFOA is looking after that actuarial mentoring program, being the IFOA representative on the group that, that drives that forward. And that's been fantastically rewarding because, you know, talking about working with people who are different from you, the moving ahead group are as far away from being actuarial as you can imagine. <laughs> so a lot less um, yeah, picking at the tiny details, but a lot more um, inspirational speakers. They've got this fantastic stable of people from sports and, and business who will come and tell really uplifting stories and they can create 
a program which has these these big events, set piece events, plus they match the pairs very effectively. They collect feedback, so we get some kind of um, metrics out of the program. And we do try and do a bit of tracking through that, so that's quite hard. But um, we've got six cohorts to follow now, so we should really be seeing what's the impact been over, over those six programs. Yeah. I've been thinking about diversity and when when I see I guess what you see on LinkedIn are sort of initiatives that are aimed at one particular group of people or another Mm. and I've just been thinking what what's the why behind it there's kind of the obvious why we know why you know we want equity equality we want to give everyone the same opportunities but I think the why I've landed on is is businesses are better with diversity of thought and if you're hiring mm. a diverse group of people, that should give you a group of people that think about things a different way, have different problem-solving skills, come up with equally good yep. but different solutions to things. But I don't see many companies sort of starting there with 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 their process. It's usually it feels to me sometimes like those sort of taking shortcuts in terms of well, let's just get more more people of of, of black heritage in or something like mm. that, so we can we can improve the numbers there. But I don't know if some people are missing why are we actually doing this and let's start from there and if it's diversity of thought let's understand what the current state looks like and and um I don't know I'm always interesting like what the problem is that people are trying to solve or not not what the problem is but why are they trying to do it and is the way they're going about it actually answering that why or not um yeah um I mean the the difficulty is it becomes corrupted when it gets too mainstream, I think, doesn't it? So mm. what you're outlining there sounds like people are counting numbers and they can produce those for management board and they can get a pat on the back and get their bonuses. Yeah. Whereas what we actually want is to promote diversity so that we – well, there's equality of opportunity, which I think is really, really important because, you know, talent is everywhere, opportunity isn't. That's That's what – you hear said isn't it and that, that's so very true we i think we have a responsibility as a profession to to try and reach those areas where there are talented individuals but they just don't have the way to get into the profession to to pursue further their careers mm-hmm. um maybe there's no history of anyone going to university at their school you know or in their family they're expected to go out and earn a, earn a living straight away or they're in some area where it just doesn't there's no um role model for them they can't see anyone like them you need to see someone like yourself in that role to help you visualize that it's possible so um yeah we we have a responsibility as a profession to to work on getting that diverse culture together but as employers we can also look at the financial reward which is demonstrably improved by having diverse teams. Diverse teams are harder to work together probably because you know you've got all these different views that you've got to balance and listen to and incorporate. But as soon as you put two people together, you've got a more creative solution instantly because nobody's life experience is the same. They will each bring something different. So if you have more and they are from a range of different backgrounds, you're going to instantly have something that's massively more impactful. Plus, you're probably going to represent your client base as well. You know, your clients will have diverse populations in all likelihood. They need to be able to, you know, see that you will understand them. So there's a whole range of, of rationales. Um, 
and you know we have made progress but I, I do I know exactly what you mean there's counting numbers of males and females is still quite prevalent in some organizations and and that really isn't um what we're trying to target as a as for uh, an end game yeah as I, say, I, I need more reading and, and thinking about it to, to back this up but I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm mixed race and just some of these programs you know, I I wouldn't want to get a job based on how I look any more no, than I'd no. want to not get the job. I just wouldn't want it to even be, even be part of mm. it. But if I got the job because I don't know, I I go about things slightly differently, or that that yeah. that's fine. But it just feels like it feels like just making decisions based on which box someone ticks isn't quite mm. the right answer. But I do get that it helps. You know, at least <laughs> it's. I don't know. I just feel a little bit. I feel like it's not the ideal solution, but it's done for the right reasons. But it could be yeah, improved. Yeah, and yeah, you know, I don't think anyone is trying to to offer jobs based on which box you tick. But it, I agree, it can look like that from the outside, mm. and um, <laughs> you, you get into the whole argument about quotas and targets, then, don't you, as well? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's an interesting topic, but it's one I don't know enough about. So I just ask a couple of questions. It's just interesting to hear any 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 opinions. But um, mm. yeah, it'd be really interesting to see the results from the IFOA. And as I say, you're six six years in now, so um, yes, hopefully yes. there'll be some some positive impacts from that. And um, what do you do when you're not working? When I'm not working, um, I find it quite healthy to do something that occupies a different part of my brain I, I think it gives the the working part of your brain a, a bit of a rest and the subconscious is very powerful isn't it so it can be worrying away at problems while you're not consciously thinking about it so I find the outside is quite a good place to be I garden and gardening is balancing in another way because it teaches you that there's no such thing as perfection a lot of actors are perfectionists and if you get out in the garden no matter how much you do there's always some more there so I find that quite balancing but also just walking bit of bit of brisk exercise that kind of thing that's quite healthy um it's just making sure you've got that balance so that you are topping up your resilience if you like it it, partly that's that's the argument too isn't it It, partly you're doing it because you enjoy it partly because um you know it's healthy for you and and yeah it's got very easy to just sit in front of a desk i found during the last few years and not going into an office you maybe wouldn't be doing many steps a day even mm-hmm. so um getting into a habit of, of getting out and doing some exercise i think is, is pretty helpful if you've got school runs and things of course you you'll you'll be out there and uh, you're making me feel really i mean i do the school runs <laughs> but they're in the car um how oh. many steps do i do a day I need to do something. <laughs> I need. To, I need to sort that out. <laughs> I'm glad I asked that, that question because I do need to get out of it. I love working from home. It works really well for me. But um, unless you know, every now and again, I'll get get in the habit of going out on the bike and things like that. But yes, I haven't done for yes. a few months. So yeah, note to self. <laughs> but you probably feel better when you get back again, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. What advice would you give to someone just starting their career in in retirement now? Okay. I mean, there's there's a few aspects to this. In retirement, in pensions, for most of my career, I've heard people say that, you know, pensions is a bit worrying. It's not going to, to last. It has lasted. And I think you won't be doing the same things, but you will be very, very needed. We have got a huge retired population and retiring, coming up to retirement population with inadequate provision. And the, the 
place for actuaries to apply their skills to solve those problems, I think, is you know huge and growing. So you might not be working on defined benefit pension schemes, but you will should have a role in in working out what retirement provision looks like. But just in terms of focusing on you know the, the immediates when you you start your career. Um, I think most of us can achieve more than we think we can. So I would say be brave, you know, be curious, back yourself a bit and and take advantage of those opportunities. But just realise that, you know, you are probably pretty good and you, you can achieve something. So have a go at it. If someone's listening to this and they're feeling a bit inspired and they have no idea that you can start as an actuary and then move into to L&D and, 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 and love it, any advice for people or anything you wish you knew in advance before making that move that they should they should think about or things they can do to explore it a bit? Um, things I wished I knew. I you, you make the best decision you can at the time based on the information available at the time. So you know, I, I tend not to draw back and say, well, I wish I'd done this or this or this. But certainly you can you can look for people who are doing things a bit like you think you might like to do and go and talk to them and ask them, you know, how did you get into this? What did it involve? How did you upskill yourself? Um, you know, what does it look like? Does it meet up to your expectations? People are usually pretty happy to talk about themselves, aren't they? And, mm. and you know, just being asked uh, is quite flattering in a way. So we're very generous in in sharing our experiences and you can find out a certain amount by by talking to people who are doing the stuff that you might want to do what you want to do might not even have been created of course you might be forging an entirely new path so um, i don't know if you if you've seen an opportunity the thing is that so many skills are so transferable i think it's thinking about those transferable skills saying i can do this really well how else could i apply this technique what other areas could what i'm good at be useful in that wasn't articulated very well but you you can see what I mean it's you can work out what you're doing well and you can see there are opportunities to use that in other areas and then it's just asking those questions because unless unless you say I'm interested in this people tend not to know we should they should know they should know I care about this why don't they give me the opportunity why don't they ask me to go on this program they they can't read your mind You, you need to tell them sometimes unless you say what's what's happening with you then you can't expect other people to know it Perfect. But my final question is, what are you looking forward to in the next 12 months? And that could be inside work, outside, one of each, up to you. Oh, quite a few things, quite a few things. I've got a number of um, pieces of learning earmarked that I want to to get on with. And I'm really interested to see how I develop the coaching side of my role over the next 12 months. That's going to be getting a lot of my energy and, and resource. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, um, if, if anybody's listening and they would like to reach out, whether they work for WTW or otherwise, um, are you happy for them to do so? And what's the best way for them to, to contact Absolutely, you? yes. LinkedIn, please. If, if people want to message me on LinkedIn, that's the best route. Brilliant. I'll make sure I put a link to that in the in the show notes. Well, um, all that remains to say is thank you so much for your time. It's, it's uh, I think you said on the phone that um, it's nice to hear from people that have taken their career, maybe started in a similar way, but gone in, in many different directions. There's so many things you can do by starting off as a as, as an actor and it's a, been an absolute pleasure to, to get to know what you do and, and and where you've gone so far so thanks for taking the time thank you i appreciate you um you listening and and the sharing you're doing with all those variety of, of career paths thanks for listening to this episode of actuarial people 
please don't forget to subscribe and consider leaving a review. If you have any questions or feedback or any suggestions for future guests, please contact me on info at actuarialpeople.com. This podcast is sponsored by my recruitment company, Turner Perkins, and you can contact me there at james.turner at turnerperkins.com. Hope to see you again.